0: Welcome. I'm Uri,
1: and I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Tassas, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So, Uri, uh, <laughs> honestly, it's hard to keep track. I can't even tell like if we're in week three of not leaving our apartments, week four of not leaving our apartments. Well, it honestly I guess feels
0: is the big um, thing coming yeah. up that's keeping us t- time-wise yep. on track.
1: Yep. I was actually just thinking at. As I was walking back to my apartment a few hours ago, I was just thinking, like, okay, we're basically forty eight hours from Pesach and that's kind of where my mm-hmm. brain is. It's just counting down to when it's to when it's starting. But um
0: Yeah. We're actually recording this in the evening. It was just the seven PM uh citywide cheering for the healthcare workers, which is always <laughs> very nice and inspiring uh, moment. Uh highlight of the days that these quiet days so yeah. that was that was nice
1: yeah i'm not sure i am not sure if cities outside new york are doing the same thing i i feel like didn't we get the idea from from a it's like a town in italy or something i'm not even sure yeah
0: i saw some videos from italy i guess yeah
1: but um yeah it is, it is really uh, it's really beautiful to see uh for the last few weeks in a row, we have a special guest, one who can give us a particular insight into a lens of what our entire community has been grappling with the past few weeks. Uh, Rabbi Gil Pearl, Rabbi Dr. Gil Pearl, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Rabbi Pearl is the head of school at Kohelet Yeshiva, which is a modern Orthodox K-12 Yeshiva Day School in Marion Station, Pennsylvania. As chief academic officer of the Kohelet Foundation, Rabbi Pearl led the team that designed and launched Kohela Yeshiva Lab School, a highly innovative elementary school intended to reimagine what Jewish day school can and ought to be. And Rabbi Pearl, I will tell you that Uri and I have spent a lot of time on and off this podcast talking about Jewish education, so that could be a whole episode in and of itself. But we particularly wanted to talk to you this week uh, because kohela has been doing a lot of really interesting and exciting and inspiring things related to COVID-19 and specifically related to, you know, seven o'clock, the healthcare workers. So um, I guess before we even dive into that, let's backtrack a little bit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Kohela? You kind of gave your bio includes kind of a, a complicated, um, you know, explanation of the school and of its mission. But can you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Sure. Uh, Kohelet actually started as a high school called Stern Hebrew High School back in 2000. Um, It is a a modern Orthodox yeshiva high school. It moved in 2010 from northeast Philly into the area where it is now, called Lower Merion. And then uh, um, I arrived in 2014. And uh, wearing a slightly different hat, wearing my chief academic officer hat of the Kohelet Foundation, we started actually quite separately an elementary school called uh, Yeshiva Lab School initially. And then we merged that elementary school with our high school to create Kohelet Yeshiva Lab School. And uh, so we now have, this year we had every grade except for fifth grade. We started the middle school somewhere in the middle there too. So we had K through four and we had six through eight this past year. So next year we'll have a fifth grade and we'll be, we'll be complete. We'll be completely K through 12.
0: Yeah, we're going to be talking about the lab specifically, but what is a lab school? What does that mean?
2: Okay, great. We're actually going to have, those are two different things, right? So we're be talking about the actual physical lab that's actually located in our high school, the, the right. fabrication lab. But uh, a lab school, that's actually the idea, was um, I think first created by John Dewey at the U- University of Chicago. John Dewey is one of the great thinkers in uh, 20th century education, psych- cognitive psychology, um, and the idea was simply this, that he saw as a, as a researcher in university, he saw that there were all sorts of ideas that um, were being proven through research methods in the academy about how learning works, about how children develop and about, you know, how they gain new information and retain old information. And yet all of that information that was, and, and all that research that was happening was kind of living in an ivory tower in the world of academia and in schools, we're still doing what schools always did. And there was really no bridge between the two. And so the idea was to, of creating a lab school was to actually create a school within the University of Chicago. It still exists yeah. today, the University of Chicago Lab School. Um, it was actually intended mostly for the children of faculty. At the University of Chicago, and the idea was to put into practice the research that had already been done in the um, in the university. So it's not to experiment on kids. Our our mascot is not a rat. Um, we get that question often. It's uh-huh. it's uh, the idea was to do the same for Jewish education to say there's so much we know about how learning works, but it, it often doesn't make its way into our classrooms or to the practitioners of, of learning um, in, in our day schools. And so we try to start with kind of a, a tabula rasa and say, well, what do we know about how children learn? And then what happens if we would build a yeshiva day school from there? So hmm. can
1: you give us uh, particular examples of innovations or creativities that the lab school uh, started with that is, uh, was born out of this research at the university?
2: Sure. Here's a, here's, a, here's a little one. One of the areas that we know the most about is actually is memory, um, which is obviously a critical piece of, um, of the learning process. It's not the only piece, but it's a critical piece. And there were a whole series of studies that were done on pre-testing. Um, extraordinary studies, which showed that you, you took the same group of students and you pre-tested them. You, t- you pre-tested one group and you didn't pre-test the other group. Even the those who got absolutely nothing right on the pretest would do better on the post-test than those who didn't take the pretest at all. Because what happens is it create you create a certain framework in your mind. Certain neural pathways are created. Even if you don't have the right information, and then once you go and learn the information, you actually know sort of where to store it and, and you're able to retrieve it much easier at the post-test. Um, so I, I think it's pretty uncommon in most schools. Yeah. Forget about Yeshiva schools, but most schools in general, to um, to consistently pretest when you begin a unit. Um, yet we do it all the time in every single subject: Judaic studies, general studies. Um, there is a pre-assessment that happens, and actually that goes out to our students um, and to our parents. And then at the end of the unit, there's a post. There's a, there's a post-assessment, which leads to another piece of learning, which is what we call metacognition. Metacognition is um, what what do you know about what do you understand what what do you understand about your learning? do you recognize what you know and what you don't know, right? Very often we have students right, who um, who will, will study for a test all night and then they'll come in the next day and take a test. And then, you know, when they get it back, they can't understand why didn't they do well. You know, I, it must've been the teacher asked the wrong, wrong questions, right? But the, the truth of the matter is they Sounds probably- Sounds very familiar. Right? I'm sure we've all heard that story before. But the truth of the matter is they didn't really know what they knew and didn't know beforehand. That's the process of metacognition. So right. when, when we finish a unit, we go back with a student- the teacher sits there with a the student and looks at the pretest and looks at the post-test and able to show them, here's what you didn't know before and now know. Right? So a student gains the sense of this is my learning trajectory. This is what I have accomplished over the course. And this is what I still don't know and have to do and have to do next. So both of those pieces emerge um, pretty consistently from the literature.
0: That's very, very interesting. Maybe we can get a little bit more into the education stuff, but um, we have to cut right to the, the main topic of today. Rabbi Pearl, I saw some posts uh, maybe last week, maybe as far as two weeks ago, or I'm not sure exactly when I started seeing, but like people posting school in Philly is, is using their lab or 3D printer to make face masks for healthcare workers. And obviously it sounds amazing um, and it's your school and, and it's your project. <laughs> Um, can you tell us how did that start where did that come from and what is actually happening what are you guys doing
2: Yeah absolutely So the story started with uh, with an email that our science department chair saw I think it was 2 weeks ago Sunday and um, she she's on a listserv for schools that have maker spaces or fab labs fabrication labs and ours is really quite new we only started it this year and so we're still learning kind of what we can and can't do with it and she sees this email that where some uh, teachers or fab lab directors are discussing you know could can they make ppe you know personal protective equipment in their in their labs and a suggestion that perhaps these face shields it could be constructed in in a lab and she sent it over to me and to our art Teacher, who's also our Fab Lab director, Mm -hmm. and she said, "You know, what do you think?" And so I forwarded it again to the art teacher, and I said, "Dan, you know, do you think we can do this?" And uh, this was Sunday evening. He said, "I'll go in tomorrow, and I'll I'll give it a try." And so he did. He was he went in Monday morning, and he was working on a bunch of different you know ways of doing it. And then uh, he was really proud by the end of the day. He had one that he really thought worked, and he 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 brought it over to my house. Um, and he was standing there on the porch. You know, we were six feet apart, so we thing. <laughs> and he, he hands it to me. And I, my head must be bigger than his because I I took it and tried to put it on mine. And As soon as I did, the whole faceplate popped right off. Oh wow! Um, so we knew we had something, but we also knew we weren't there. You know, quite mm-hmm. yet. But so that was that was Monday, um, Tuesday morning. So we went back to the, we went back to the lab to try and and adjust it. But we also realized the one piece of um, material that we didn't have in the lab was this, what they call buttonholed elastic, which is just an elastic band that's cut with these buttonholes throughout it. And it goes in the back of the shield. So it holds it onto the you know, onto the health professional's face. Um, So we didn't have just to clarify, we're talking about a plastic
0: uh, shield that goes in front of a face, not like a material mask.
2: Exactly. This is not a mask. And there was a lot of confusion around that also, especially since Mm -hmm. one of our earliest pictures had somebody wearing the mask. Uh But that's that is actually standard protocol in the in the hospitals to To do both. You wear the N95 mask and then you put this shield Mm -hmm. over it. Um, and so, yes, it's made out of, a, um, a material called a PETG or a PETG, which is that clear, um, uh, mm-hmm. it's sort of like the, the material that a soda bottle is made out of, mm-hmm. out of clear, hard plastic, but somewhat mm-hmm. pliable. And then it attaches to a band that goes around your head, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that band gets, uh, you know, attached with elastic in the back. Um, mm-hmm. so we, we realized we didn't have that, uh, that elastic band. And so that was my first. Facebook post that I put out there saying, you know, does anybody have this? Because we wanted to bring it to one of our local hospitals for them to approve, but I didn't want to bring it without that band on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we, you know, when we tried to order it, it was, it wasn't going to come in until the end of the week. And, uh, that was, I guess, the first time I realized how powerful this idea was in the community because people started responding en masse and people were telling me that they were searching their houses for it. And before I knew within two hours, you know, people had found it in their houses. And I was going around like collecting these little bags that people were leaving on their porches for me. Um, And by the time I got back home, there were were bags on my porch and people (laughs) actually started Cutting these out of their children's clothing, that toddlers and oh um, my God. pants and skirts have it in the waistband, so that it allows you to, to to adjust it easily. And people saw what we were doing, and they just that's incredible. They just started cutting it out. Wow!
0: Um, I guess people just are so desperate to help, and there's so little we can do because you can't get near people. This was it seems like was something that they could do, and people were really eager to do anything they could.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So. That was Tuesday. So on Tuesday we brought this first, um, this first prototype to our most local hospital. And th- now this prototype has a three D printed band that goes around that. So we were using two machines, our three D printers, to create kind of these plastic bands, and our laser cutter, which is what cuts the pieces necessary for the for the face plate. We realized, though, that the, the 3D printers, they're, they're kind of slow machines, um, mm-hmm. so to print these bands was taking us, we, we, we could do four in the printing, and we had three 3D printers, so we were basically getting 12 at a time, and it was taking six hours wow. to produce mm-hmm. 12 of them on these machines. So mm-hmm. as we were going through the process of trying to get this first one approved, our art teacher was looking around online for other ideas for how we might be able to do this and, and found a design that used a cut piece of acrylic to for the band instead of the um, the 3D printed band and cutting acrylic do, is done in, in the laser cutter and that's actually a much, much faster process. Can I,
1: can I interrupt, April, just to ask you sure. very quickly how much of this, you sound very knowledgeable and confident in very technical <laughs> conversation how much of this did you too. know two weeks and two days ago zero okay because i'm like maybe you're already an expert because you sound very knowledgeable
2: (laughs) yes yes that's what happens when you spend about 20 hours a day in a lab for two weeks you learn a ton it's
0: pretty amazing okay i'm Um, sorry i didn't mean to interrupt please keep going well once we're interrupted i just have also one more question where's the plastic for the visor um coming from for
2: the for the sh- like the, the, the mask plate.
0: itself how are you getting the plastic yeah. for that
2: oh so that that's actually become our biggest challenge um we initially found some um, in some plastics um, vendors here in the Philly area but they quickly ran out and mm-hmm. um you know production has, has been slowed by everything that's that's happening today yeah. um that has been our biggest challenge so we had enough to get us through last week actually I think it was Tuesday. I sent out a call saying that we that we were running low, and we, we managed to surface a few more sheets that held us through Wednesday because we had put in an order that was supposed to come in actually North Jersey, in and um, Friday. Unfortunately, that uh, we got notice on Friday that it had been delayed. Mm. It was supposed to come in today. We got notice today that it has been delayed again. They're hoping Wednesday. Um, In the meantime, oh, good
1: Wednesday—that's a day that you're gonna have a lot of free time. (laughs)
2: Exactly, exactly. Um, We did get—we did find though somebody in Ohio who had some in his shop who is overnighting them to us. Um, so by tomorrow morning we should be back in the business of getting those plates on. So it's in the since Thursday of last week we've just been making and prepping the bands. Mm-hmm. We have you know over five hundred of them waiting to go. Wow. Um, and so yeah, it just finding sourcing that material is has been the biggest challenge
0: we've ran into recently. Wow, amazing. And and who is actually there doing this? It's not students, right? No. No, it's not students. Uh,
2: it, our art teacher and his wife uh-huh. are there. Um, and and me, which is the three of us in the lab, and then we have alumni who are working on inventory for us and working on pickups and deliveries for mm-hmm. us. Um, and then we have kids who are making cards at home for the yeah. for the health professionals, which we're now you know including in every oh, that's in every really package. Sweet. Holy cow! Um, which is really nice. Yeah. Right.
1: So Rabbi Pearl, if I if I can ask you kind of a, a big picture question, I mean, obviously, the fact that you guys thought of this idea and that you have this lab at your disposal, it's like really incredible what you guys are doing. but. It also seems to me that this isn't just sort of a choice like, oh, logistically, we're able to help. It seems like you're also making kind of a, a conscious choice that even though school is closed, there is some sort of khinuch, there is some sort of education in which you're able to integrate these different things. Um, Can you kind of like ex- I mean, maybe I, maybe I'm maybe it's not true, you know, maybe this is that's totally unrelated. But can you kind of talk that out a little bit? Um, how are you how are you thinking of this from an educational perspective, especially from someone who. Thinks very critically about education and how to do education in a very unique way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, first of all, we make a big deal out of the fact that our school is not closed. Well, it is now for break, but school has not been closed. <laughs> it's been open. Our campus has been closed, but school has very much been open for the past three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, ab- you're absolutely right there. We, we, we do see this as an opportunity for in a in a very powerful way. Um, I think on many, many different levels. I think. Um, it is a a moment to show our students by example that you know when there is a need in your community, our, our responsibilities, our achrayus, it's 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 what we're here to do. If you can help, you you ought to help. You you have to help. Um, it's not a it's not a question. It's not a choice. Um, I think it's been a powerful opportunity to teach about what community is, and especially for our kids, for whom so often community has a very almost insular definition to it. it. It's only, you know, it's the people that we see in shul and the people that we see in school. And how often do we get to, to think in in a more you know in a broader context about the our, our police our our those our ambulance corps our local hospital this is our community also and what are we what are we doing for them on a regular basis and showing them that that they mean something to us and here's an opportunity to do that um, and I think lastly you know I, if you Google me far enough you can find that uh, the idea of of or Lagoyim, and um, you know, I, I prefer to call it Or Amim. Is something to me is is kind of a critical idea from modern Orthodoxy. It's kind of what we're here to do. We stand in this nexus between you know, tradition, Halacha, and mesorah on the one hand, and you know modern society on the other, um, and to to take an opportunity to to. Be out there and and you know for our larger society and being giving them something, um you know for which which they need and which is a which positively impacts society. I think hopefully is is teaching our kids that this is this is what we're here to do. We're here to make the world around us better. You know it's it's unfortunate often that in our circles you know the words like tikkun olam have all sorts of you know um connotations negative that, that connotations often, yeah that take us sort of outside of the Orthodox world and, and brands you as something other than but it's it's so central to what it means to be a Torah Jew. And so I think the opportunity to do something of that sort, I think is, is really powerful and a powerful educational moment for our kids.
0: Yeah, I think that's very beautiful. Like to be really honest, when I first saw the story, obviously, it's an amazing feel good story in a time with not very many feel good stories that you're seeing. But part of me was like, okay, well, how many masks can they actually be making? And compared to like, I'm sure the factories that are working overtime making their masks, does this actually make any sort of impact? But then as I thought about it more, and especially now that I'm hearing it from you, like, that's not really the point. I'm spe- if you're, you're making a few hundred masks, even or more, um, that will have an impact. And even if it helps just a handful of, of healthcare workers, that's huge. And, and that's amazing. And it also shows, like we were saying, um, that you're doing, you're doing what you can and your community is doing what it can. And I think it's, I find it very inspiring.
2: And, you know, the impact is actually bigger than we thought it would be initially. Not only are we making more, but now we have this whole network. I mean, our entire public school system is now printing bands for us, and they're bringing wow. the bands over, so we just have to fit those, you know, those that's seals so cool. on. That's, um, that's you know, an if,
1: awesome partnership. That's really, really, it, really it's, cool.
2: It, it's, it's amazing. Um, so the, the number that we'll be able to produce, we don't quite yet know because we're still waiting for this, you know, PETCHI to come in. But, you know, we, we, we ordered enough PETCHI for about six to 7,000 masks wow, um, of face shields. So, and, really? and then if you think about the fact that unlike the, the N95s, these really can be reused and we're building right. them in so such a way it. that they can be, yeah. yeah, they can be sterile. So, you know, I mean, they're, they're ERs that reach out to us. And if we, if we give them 10, they have enough for a shift. Right. You know, and they and they get reused. That's a very I mean, real it's, impact. Yeah, it's, it re, it it re, it really is, and so that's incredible. Yeah,
1: um, Rabbi Pearl, to, to, I, I I was also really moved by the way you were just sort of describing of like you see it as part of your school's mission to not only educate in you know classroom settings and things like that, but you're also trying to you know big picture and tikkun olam and and a different way of approaching sort of the outside world, and I'm wondering. Um, emirat Hashem, right, bezrat Hashem, hopefully sometime soon this will all be over and your fab lab can go back to the regular work it does and your students can be back in classrooms and everyone can be, you know, kind of heading back to normal. In what way do you see what happened over the past few weeks and what is going to happen for hopefully a very short time, impacting the future of education? What do you see as sort of the next steps for your school, the next steps for how you see education and keeping these values going forward, even when you don't have to do this particular thing?
2: Yeah, I think it's a great question. The truth of the matter is we had a vision for a community element for our Fab Lab long before anybody knew what COVID-19 was. Uh, we'd actually had a series of meetings with a, a an inner-city charter school, here, um, not not too far from us, about you know some potential collaborations we could have with them um, on kind of the making, and because these are these are resources they don't have in their schools. Um, we actually had uh, we we had an unbelievable idea. Of, uh, I think it was two years ago. Now we had a student um, who really. Loved playing the violin. She started playing the violin in in, in high school, um, but due to certain um, physical disabilities that she had, she was unable to really hold it properly. And uh, actually, there was a there was a an idea amongst teachers and students to actually build her a. a a brace that would go cool. that would fit right there in her shoulder that would help her to hold you know the the, the violin better cool. using the 3d printers now it didn't happen in the end it was you know they started with it and they you know they but it, it, it never fully developed but but the notion that we can use these things to better the lives of those around us you know was certainly part of that initial initial vision and I think this will just give us the boost you know to say yeah we can we can we can use this to make a difference and let's look for what that next need might be and let's let's go out there and fill it. Amazing.
0: Well, Robbie Pearl, this has been really, really um, amazing and interesting to hear about. Um, You also just mentioned before that you were looking into getting parts from North Jersey. Rivki and I are both from Teaneck, and we actually get criticized sometimes that we talk about Teaneck too much (laughs) on the show. And so on the one hand, this is amazing. We have an out-of-town head of school rabbi, (laughs) a doctor talking to us, but you are, in fact, actually also from Teaneck, and I think it's a source of pride. Is it Teaneck or Bergenfield, actually?
2: Bergenfield, actually. Before before Bergenfield was Bergenfield.
1: (laughs) The truth is that I'm actually also from Bergenfield, but I'm still kind of in that era where whenever I would say to people that I was from Bergenfield, they're like, what is that? So I'm like, ah, exactly. t just say <laughs> t So even though I know now people know what Bergenfield is, I'm still used to saying t Right.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I just we wanted to just ask you um, to close out. Um, do you have a message or a thought to share um, now going into Pesach in this very difficult time?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think... I think that this whole story has just kind of emphasized for us how important it is to cherish the things that we do have, to recognize, you know, the the power that's within us and the the opportunities that that often are, are stand just beyond our line of sight, you know, and, and we may not realize that we may go days and weeks and months and not realize that those opportunities are there. And and then something like this happens and all of a sudden, you know, you, you appreciate it in a way that, uh, you never did before. And I think that so much of Pesach is that way, you know, the, the notion of our, our freedoms and the opportunities that we have, whether it's, you know, physically or spiritually, um, they're, they're opportunities that we so often take for granted you <laughs> and um, you know I think that the the, the whole notion of sheep love to be to see ourselves as if we were there is to be able to recreate that opportunity um, to say hey let's actually let let's actually feel for a moment where we were let's let's take away those things that we have and that we've become so accustomed to and let's feel it again let's feel again what it feels like to have this and to recognize and to appreciate the things that we have um, you know and, and then uh, lastly there's just no question that throughout the Torah. The the idea of Zecher L'tias Mitzrayim is there in order to uh, sensitize us to the plight of others. It's to sensitize us to the plight of Avadim. It's there to sensitize us to the, the plight of Amanot and Yitomim. Uh, the Torah couldn't be clear that that whether that was the reason why we had the Shibud or, or that's the consequence thereof, is that we ought to be going through life with this type of sensitivity um, to feel, to hear, to empathize with the needs of others. And so hopefully that, that that's what this uh, Pesach will be for us. It'll be an opportunity for us to, remind ourselves of the beauty and the things that we do have and also sensitize us to the needs of others
1: I mean, I think that's um we've been talking about this in the last few episodes also have like we we on the one hand there is so much to be grateful for and we're, we're kind of reminded of that and at the same time you know, easier said than done, right? We're all kind of struggling emotionally, mentally. Some of us with loved ones who are actually sick, and it's it's hard sometimes to kind of remind ourselves. But I do think that that um, that that definitely does resonate. Sort of also how how Pesach can can is specifically instructed to do that for us. That was that was yeah, definitely inspiring. Thank
2: you, Rabbi Pearl. Hey, my pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for for joining us and sharing uh, what the amazing things that your school is involved with.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And of course, thank you all so much for listening. Please be in touch with us. Tell us what you think. Join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Tachlis Podcast, and shoot us an email, talkingtachlispodcast at gmail.com.
0: Thanks as always to Drive-In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Tachlis. Bye, everyone. Sağ